0: This series is called Big Rocks, the priorities that bring order to chaos. And this morning what I want you to do is I want you to fly in your mind's eye over the Atlantic Ocean and uh, picture just sort of hovering down over Jerusalem. And you see that, that gold dome, the dome of the rock, and just to the west of it, There is a place called the temple, uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And that is built over where uh, people believe, have believed for centuries, that that's where uh, the tomb of Arimathea Arimathea is, where Jesus, um, in a borrowed grave, was was buried. And so there was a a church uh, built to commemorate that. And um, it's over, well over 1,500 years old, and it's been controlled by a couple of different uh, Christian groups, uh, one from, e- uh, from Ethiopia and one from Egypt. And so the Coptic Christians have been there for, for, for centuries, along with uh, Ethiopian Christians. It's 2002, and it's summertime. It's summertime and it feels like a Thomasville afternoon in August, in September, even in early October. We'll get there, people. We'll get there. It's 2002, and it's sweltering hot, and a Coptic Christian is on the roof of the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, and he looks over to see this patch of shade and decides he's going to take his chair over there, and he He sets his chair in the shade and sits down and starts almost starts World War III. You say, what? You've got to be kidding me. Just by where he's seated, he started a fight? Yes. Dozens of monks beat the living stew out of each other because that Coptic Christian moved his chair to a part of the roof that was controlled by the Ethiopian church. You thought uh, thought your family had trouble, right? Divisions, it's kind of normal, isn't it? Human nature, typical. When people are different, what's typical is we're divided. And so birds of a feather flock together, even in the church, not good. That's typical too. So, So when we're different, we're divided. That's typical. When we're the same, when we're birds of a feather, we flock together. That's normal, too. What's weird is when we're different and united. That's weird. This morning, let's consider how to keep the church weird. From the Word of God, First Peter, starting with verse 9. Would you open your Bibles? Have you brought them? Turn to 1 Peter. It's one of the last books in the, uh, in the New Testament. We'll have it here on the screens for you. This is the English Standard Version. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Well, that's that's sort of in the gap there. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, Be subject to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray together. Holy God, bless us now to receive your word, not only to our minds that we may understand, but to our hearts that we may believe, and our hands and feet that we may live. In Jesus' name, amen. If you go to Asheville, North Carolina, and you drive downtown... You'll see some pretty weird stuff. Asheville is kind of like Burlington, Vermont. It's kind of like Portland, Oregon. It's kind of like um, Austin, Texas. And in each of these these cities, there is a, a cultural diversity like unlike any other places in the United States. And recently, I was I was driving in Asheville, and I was driving behind a car, and I saw. A bumper sticker that said, keep Asheville weird. <laughs> keep Asheville weird. I love that. You know, it's normal to see uh, and consider weirdness as being just sort of different, right? And when we're different and when we have diversity, you know, these days it's sort of like a, a dogma. It's sort of like a doctrine. Diversity. It's not tough to be diverse. What's tough is e pluribus unum. Out of many, one. What's tough is to have diversity but to stay unified. What's difficult and weird is to be different and yet have common ground. So, increasingly as our culture becomes more diverse how do we as a church embrace differences in culture but maintain unity of the spirit how do we how do we even in the way that we are set up as a church convey to the world around us that we are really kind of different we are weird in a really, really good way. How do we do that? What does it look like? Let's take a look at, at the way we look at the past, at the present, and the, at the future. Because the, the way that, that Christians view the past, present, and future, the way the lens through which we look, the lens of authority, that keeps many one. It creates a common ground to have a common authority. And so first, the past. The way we look at the past. Let's consider that for a minute. We look at the past as though it speaks. History speaks. It has a certain authority to it. We can learn from the past. We view the past as having a history as, 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 as though God were at work in it and through it, and he is. Not that it's just total, utter chaos, but that there's a certain order that God speaks to us through the past. There's a, there's a woman, uh, I was reading about this, uh, this, this woman was talking to, uh, to a lawyer, and um, he was a- across the country, and um, he said something like, uh, well, well, why don't you fax that to me? And she said, well, we don't, we don't use... We don't use faxes where I am, and he said, "Well, where are you?" And she said, "2018." (laughs) Yeah, kind of obnoxious, you know. But and and and, we still use faxes. I mean, people still use fax machines, and in fact, our copier does use uh, can can allow faxes. Why am I talking about faxes? Well, the reason is that a lot of times what we think of as technology, we think of as progress. And we begin to think of our technological progress as though humanity were perfectible. And so, because we're in 2018, the cultural milieu or the sensibilities that we have today are better than the ones yesterday. You know, that's that's what people thought in the 1930s in Germany. I thought, well, we're going to apply the Enlightenment principles. We're going to move beyond the fax machine, so to speak. And this is, is, uh, after all, uh, the 20th century. This is 1933, 1935, 1938. And we're way beyond, we're way beyond what uh, people believed and thought and did in the 1800s. This is the rise of fascist Germany. You see, what people learned and what we can learn, even from the history of Europe and World War II, is that human beings go through cycles and cultures go through cycles. They go down in to the depths of giving themselves over to their whims and to their reason unfettered, unmoored to any historical authority. And and then they begin to learn again. They begin to learn again. They look back and they begin to let in a voice that's outside of them. It's It's as if sometimes we just... And become chronological snobs That's what's the way one uh, author put it this way said, watch out for chronological snobbery Just because you happen to be walking around Doesn't mean you know more and better Than the people who have come before you There's a guy named Thomas Lessing who said The, uh, the accidental truths of history Do not necessitate the essential truths of reason Let me, let me unpack that for a minute the accidental truths of history. You see, that's that's the idea that, that history is only chaos. That God doesn't speak in history. The accidental truths of history do not necessitate the essential truths of reason. You see, what that is, is that's pride. It's pride. It says, well, we have reason. And we can... Muscle through with reason, through anything, and so we don't have to learn from the hist- from history. We're not obligated to the the, the historic uh, uh, revelations and the way that God has revealed Himself in history. We just need our modern sensibilities. We just need our reason. You see, in this in this passage, what Peter is. Is laying out for us is that God has taken initiative. People are are very uncomfortable with the chosen language of the New Testament, but it's everywhere. I mean, you cannot if you don't like the chosen if you don't like the chosen language of Scripture, then just tear the Book of Ephesians out of your Bible. All right. If you don't like the fact that uh, that God is by grace acting upon human history in order to bring about his fashioned ends. If you don't like the fact that it is God that, that, that seeks and saves the lost, then tear out almost half of the New Testament. But the good news is this. However uncomfortable you are with the idea that God acts first, he is at work in you long before you can respond. Some of the markers of of what we we think of as our spiritual birth date or spiritual transformation. If you begin to to reflect upon that season of your life, you can see that God was at work fashioning those circumstances to lead you to that moment. God's choosing is a beautiful picture of his initiative in your life. God's choosing is, is him taking initiative where we fail God's choosing is to build a bridge between him and us, a rift that that our brokenness creates. God's choosing is mysterious and and beyond us. We can't understand it all, and, and the implications of it are difficult for us to wrap our minds around. But don't miss the point, and that is he takes initiative in your life, and he takes initiative in human history, and we can learn from it, when our eyes are open, when our ears are open, when we're willing, when we're willing, history can bring wisdom to us in the present, and that creates a common ground. We begin to learn from our past. We begin to Reflect with humility, not with chronological snobbery, we begin to reflect with humility that we 're capable of such things. We, we no longer think in terms of us and them so much we don 't just think all oh, those terrible people in stalinist russia i can 't believe that they succumbed to uh, to the the, 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 the the mores of a dictator and yet, if we were to condition our Culture, the way that it was conditioned in that day and age with increasing chaos, we would want a strong arm too. And as a result, human nature, it has a certain response to certain circumstances. But in the church, we're called, we're called to have open ears, open eyes to the authoritative way that God acts. In and through human history. So that's the first thing. We create common ground through the humility of looking at history as though it speaks. But it also speaks, there's an authority in the present. The present speaks with authority. The present speaks with authority. And that creates common ground. Well, how does the present speak? How does God speak into the present with authority? That's a question. How does God speak to the present with authority? How does he do it? Every now and then I hear somebody say to me, God told me. God told me. I want to caution you about that. You don't hear me using that language. Now, I'm a pastor. You would think, I have all the more reason to use that language. Do I? I have all the more reason to be careful not to use that kind of language. If God told me, then it better be out of this book. The only reason why I have the audacity, I don't have audacity, I have the humility to get up here and talk to you all is because I'm speaking out of probably about 15, 20 hours of study of this passage this week. That's the only authority that I have I have no other authority apart from this scripture. Now, there more is caught than taught. And what I want to get at here is, is that the scriptures here, they speak... Through your life, when they're applied and internalized and owned. It's one thing to, that we, we sang earlier. I was thinking of this when we were singing earlier about, uh, God, I believe. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe that you, uh, you will come again. Okay, it's one thing to sing that, but live it in the midst of your deepest, difficult circumstances. That's authoritative. That's authoritative. It's immature to say, you know what, I had this feeling and therefore I am going to assert that God told me this. What's mature is when somebody is living some very difficult circumstances and yet they believe. What's authoritative and powerful and mature is when somebody is dealing with something and yet they are looking to Scripture as their guide. They're looking to a voice outside of themselves. So I'm answering the question. The question is, how does God speak authoritatively into the present? He does it through his word, but don't miss this. He does it through the scriptures, but he does it through the scriptures applied in your life. I think of some of the people who are dealing with some things right now, even this week, and I am just, I am just humbled by the way that some people in our church Trusting Christ right now. I am humbled by the way some people in this church right now are trusting, not just singing to a screen, but they're living it. They're trusting God through their circumstances. What Paul, what Peter is saying through this passage here, is that. Now, now, I'm going to say something really strange. It's going to sound really weird, but think of this for just a minute. You're set-apartness. You are a set-apart people. That's what it means to be holy. You're set-apart. God chose you. Yes, he took initiative in your life. What for? To set you apart. To be weird. To be in many one. How? By taking and trusting in the things that he says in the word and the scriptures. The things that the Holy Spirit, the wonderful counselor, says to you and your conscience. You know, so, so Paul, uh, not, not the writer of this passage, but but Paul who wrote uh, many other uh, books in the New Testament. Paul went to the Berean church. And in Acts chapter 17, the Bereans had a particular response to they said, now, these Bereans were, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word from Paul with all eagerness, eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was really true. <laughs> I love that. I'm Paul, okay, right? right? Now, we look at Paul a little differently because we just opened the chapter and verse. And it's like, well, Paul said it. I believe it. That settles it, right? The Bereans are going, no, let's make sure this matches up with the scriptures. What were the scriptures at the time? The Old Testament. The kerygma or the central gospel stories that were being circulated from the eyewitnesses to Jesus. And they're saying, okay, Paul, you're speaking to our church, but does what you're saying line up with what we've already received? You see, it's so important that our authority be outside of us, not because Tim said it on Sunday morning, but because what Tim said on Sunday morning is scriptural. It takes into account the whole counsel of God. It lines up with what we already know through the scriptures. Justice Kennedy said some years ago, he said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe and of the mystery of life." Oh, no, no, no. Let me read that again. This doesn't line up. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of life. Really? How many times have I messed that up? (laughs) Today, right? I don't always act or believe or think in a way that leads to greater liberty for me. Contrast that with what Lincoln said in response to Stephen Douglas. He said, Stephen Douglas said this to Lincoln, and said, people have the right to choose as they vote and, and vote as they choose. In other words, he was speaking up for slavery in the South. And Lincoln said, no one has the right to do what is fundamentally wrong. You see, in this day and age, we've lost our common sources. We've lost them. We're losing them. And so it's on us as the church not just to assert them, to affirm them, but to live them in such a way that when people accuse you of wrongdoing, they'll look at your life and say, there's no way. That can't be true. That's what exactly what Peter is saying. To live in such a way that your conduct among the Gentiles is so honorable that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, what's happening here is not only are they saying the Scriptures live by the Scriptures, but the Scriptures trusted, forwards, understood sometimes backwards, but believed in a way that's lived. That witness speaks with authority. Not just because God told me, but because he told me here, because I lived it out here, and because as a result, there was a blessing, even though maybe even the circumstances never changed. There's an authoritative speech for today. Finally, this. God not only speaks to us authoritatively in the past... He speaks to us authoritatively in the presence through his word, but applied through believers who are believing even in difficult moments. But he speaks in a way that's authoritative into the future. And what does that look like? What does it mean then for us as a people to create common ground by embracing the idea that God is speaking into our future in a way that brings us together? What does that look like? What does it look like? You know, we have a culture war right now. And when I see people beating up on Christianity, it you know when when I hear it, overhear it, or when I see it online or whatever, my tendency is we want, want to fight back. Isn't it yours? Like if somebody says you know something like uh, like I saw the other day, we need we need less Christian influence over our morals. Really. What I want to say is, okay, put them up. Right. Like, take her, put them all up, right? I want to say, bring it on. Let's debate. I'll take you down, buddy. I thought about this a couple minutes before you did. I will take you out. Come on. Bring it on. And then I'm going to tweet you into oblivion. (laughs) You are toast. You're going to come mess with me? Isn't that what you think? Isn't that, what you're, isn't that what you're seeing? Let me ask you a Dr. Phil question. How does that seem to be working for us? Not too well. Instead, what if, what if that person said, you know, we need, we need less Christian influence over our morals. And I said something like this. What part of Christianity are you struggling with right now? Tell me about more about that. Let's talk about that. I will guarantee you that that conversation will draw out something that has nothing to do with Christianity, not true Christianity. What you'll discover is somebody who's been hurt, either by their family or by the church, or somebody who is sanctimonious and self-righteous and beating them up as though the gospel were some kind of weapon. And in that case, we just have to simply apologize and say, you know, that shouldn't have happened. But that's, that's not the kind of faith to which I'm called. You see, see the guy that I'm following is a guy who when he was stretched out on a cross, crucified, excruciatingly, that's where we get that word. He looked out and what did he say? Oh, if I could just get my hands on a phone, I will tweet these people. He said, "Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do." In 2006, in an Amish community called Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, a shooter went into a schoolhouse and shot and killed five six through 6-12 year olds. And the response of the Amish community was completely mind-blowing to the world. They were criticized at first, Do you see where I'm going with this? These Amish came alongside the family of the shooter. The shooter had killed himself. And these Amish came alongside the family of, of the shooter, a woman, a widow, and her three children. And they took up a collection for her. And they said, this is for days ahead when things get difficult for you. That's the future that we're called to embrace together. That's the common ground that we're called to create. That's the witness into the future that we as Christians are called to sacrifice for at times. Now, the criticism today, those Amish were, oh, look at that, how dismissive they are. This Christian forgiveness stuff is just, they, they're, just they're just in denial. These people, they just, they're not even dealing with reality. What, what is wrong with these people? And then the cameras got closer and they realized the Amish pain was not dismissed. The faith and their forgiveness was not some kind of painkiller. They were stepping out in faith to do what they were called to do. You can see through verses 12 and through 15, keep the conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God, not you. That was the witness of one group of people who had common ground. They believed, as we do, that God speaks in history. He speaks into our present, and he calls us into a common ground future. That when we live it together, out of many, one, we speak with authority. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you that your word still speaks today. And we pray for those moments when our faith falters, that you would shore us up, that as we lock arms together, God, we would understand what it means To live out faith together in such a way that the people around us would say, see how they love in Jesus' name, amen.